All righty. Last week's class was pretty intense. Jesus did not pull any punches when he said we need to face up to our anger and our lust and deal with both issues. And I just want to pause right there and say, we are talking about him training his disciples. So you can think of it like him training his pastors, even he's training us. But if, if you think of your pastors, of the pastors out in the world, where they fall down is with sex and with abuse, abuse of their um, co-workers, abuse of their power, abuse of um, the, the organizations that they're part of. So I don't think it's any accident that Jesus picked anger and lust to um, real to have us focus on. If we're going to be disciples, those two are the most dangerous areas and we need to address them. So we're focusing on this whole green section here, Jesus' words on how to fulfill our mission. And we're following all the teachings in the order they're given so that we get a more holistic sense of how Jesus trains his disciples. But but we're just kind of going color by color here. So Jesus follows up his tough words on anger and lust with words of healing. Of course he does. We need to something to fill those dark places. We need the same light the world needs. And after a long section of teachings on anger and lust and how God's got this and how we must love even those who hate us, Jesus inserts this one single sentence. He says, that's how you'll be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, most folks throw up their hands at this point. This seems completely unattainable. How can we be as perfect as God? Well, we know that when something seems completely out in left field and utterly impossible, it's time to pull out our backpack tools. One of those tools is looking at the immediate context of the passage. So this statement in particular is referring back to what Jesus just said. So let's back up and look at that a little more closely. He started with, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And he said that actually doing and teaching God's commands is our part of that. Doing and teaching is how we show up in the kingdom of heaven. Last week, Jesus taught us how to deal with our anger, not to lash out, but to reach out, to reconcile with each other um, when that's possible. He told us to do whatever it takes to deal with our lust. Otherwise, we will destroy each other with its fruit of adultery and divorce. And then he says, we can't make anything happen by swearing an oath. We don't have any source of real power in ourselves. God is the only real power source. And then Jesus has a long section about how to love our enemies. And we're going to get to that part a little later. So these things, these bullet points are the context for Jesus' statement about how we get to be perfect. It is in doing these things 
and realizing these things that this perfection stuff happens. It, it really isn't a very long list of things. And all of it is doable if we choose to do the work. But will doing these things really make us perfect like God? We must still be missing something here. So it's time to pull out another backpack tool. Let's pull out the tool where we look at the original language. Let's do a deeper dive on that word perfect. The word is teleos. You might recognize the root word telos. It means the end of something, complete fulfillment of a goal or aim. It is in this sense only that this word means perfection. It means being completely filled up, fully matured. It means reaching full strength. It has absolutely nothing to do with whether we make mistakes or not. It doesn't mean we will be without sin or that we will never miss the mark. It means that if we actually do the things Jesus is teaching us about how to be an active part of the kingdom of heaven now, we'll be on the right track. In fact, as we all know, making mistakes is how we grow and mature. Making mistakes is part of the doing. Our aim will be true and in our own human stumbling, bumbling way, we will be working right alongside God in his mission to bless all the nations of the world. But this sounds like works, not grace, right? Well, remember that the point of this whole sermon is to train the disciples in what they can do to help Jesus in his mission. So this is like a subset here. Jesus has come overall to heal us and to free us. He has come to proclaim the season of God's great favor. And grace is another name for that season. Grace is the pleasure God has in us and his delight and acceptance of us in spite of our many frailties and shortcomings. Grace is the ocean we are swimming in. We still need to be doing our breaststrokes and our dog paddles, whatever we can do, getting steadily stronger as we work alongside Jesus, all the while knowing we are surrounded and sustained by God's grace. And that is what it means when Jesus says, you shall be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That word means you will be whole, filled, complete, aiming in the right direction, and surrounded by grace, even while you work hard, even while you suffer. Even when you make a zillion mistakes, you will be moving with and towards God, maturing and becoming more potent all the time. Next, Jesus talks about some of the common things any disciple would be doing. For example, Jesus assumes that the disciples are already giving actual, tangible, physical support to those who are in need. 
This is a major commandment embedded in lots of places in the law of Moses. And Jews have always been particularly faithful about doing this. Jesus only has one course correction for them. He says, when you give to the needy, don't publicize it. The only reason to publicize it would be for your own honor and glory. Don't let that temptation rob you of the better reward, he says, the reward of knowing how pleased God is with you. Don't look to others to fill a need in you that only God can truly fill. When you give, be so subtle about it that your right hand won't even know what your left hand is doing. No one else may ever know what you did, but your father sees what you do and he will reward you. Jesus says the same thing goes for prayer. When you pray, do it privately, just between you and God. Don't draw attention to yourself in synagogue or pray out on the street corners. And by the way, pray simple, short prayers. Don't be long-winded like the Gentiles. They think the more words they speak, the better God hears. And that's not how God is. God is listening before you even start speaking. God knows what you need before you even ask. The same goes for fasting, Jesus says. When you fast, don't go around with straggly hair and dirty, unwashed faces to show everyone you're fasting. Honestly, people who do that already have their reward. Don't swap your reward from your Father in heaven for that. When you fast, brush your hair and wash your face and go about your business as normal. Only your Father in heaven will know you are fasting and he will reward you. In a previous class series, I talked a bit about fasting and about how its purpose is to heighten our awareness of God, not in a woo-woo sort of way, but in a very down-to-earth, practical sort of way. Our hunger pains serve as little alerts in our bodies, reminding us to turn towards God, to remember God, and to open ourselves to God. And as Jesus points out, there's absolutely no reason anyone else needs to be aware we're fasting. So what's the deal with all these rewards? We tend to think of rewards as things like money or trophies. But Jesus says, all that sort of stuff has to be protected or thieves will steal it or moths or rats will chew it up. Don't let such things be valuable to you. Instead, store your truly precious things in heaven, because where your valuable things are, that's where your heart will be also. So let's pause a moment and focus on that word heaven. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about our Father in heaven. So clearly, heaven is where God dwells. But Jesus also talks at length about our participation in the kingdom of heaven, now, here on earth. So it is apparent that the kingdom, the heaven's lands and rule and reign, extends here to us on earth. We are part of heaven. God is with us. You know that. 
Jesus is here. We are workers right alongside Jesus. In class 94, in the series on Jesus beginning his ministry, I talk about imagery Jesus himself uses in which he portrays himself as the ladder between heaven and earth. Now, some people think of heaven as like this completely different place that we go to when we die. You know, that may be, they may be right. But I tend to think of it more like a concurrent universe, one that permeates our own physical universe. For me, heaven is outside of chronological time. It is in what the Greeks would call kairos time, God time eternal, always now, pretzel time. Heaven is here because God is fully present, as close as our thought, as close as our breath. For me, heaven is where my eternal spirit dwells even now as it inhabits my temporary physical body. So I intuitively get this idea of storing up my treasures in heaven. It's like having a jewelry box in my soul that no one sees. Only my father and I can see it, but we can see it here and now. But regardless of how you think of heaven, if our treasures are the gifts God gives us, gifts of life, and love, and healing, and wisdom, and abundance, even in terrible scarcity and pain, then it makes no sense to rent storage space on earth for lesser treasures. The treasures from God are stored in God's own self. Kind of going along with this is what Jesus has to say about God and money. He says, You cannot serve both God and money. You can't have two bosses. You have to choose one or the other. That makes a lot of sense. We have to actually decide which kind of treasure we truly want. The, you know, desires are mutually exclusive. You get your paycheck from one or the other. So hear me on that. It is the treasure we desire that guides our actions. If we treasure what God offers us, then any other earthly treasure will only be passing through our hands to be given in service to God, probably to be given away for the most part, if the lives of the saints over the centuries is any indication. And now Jesus begins to wrap up this thread about how we fulfill our missions. He says, That gate is small and the road is narrow that leads you to life. Not many people find it. Go through that narrow gate. Don't choose the wide gate and the spacious road. Many go that way, but it leads to destruction. That word destruction, as you might have guessed, has all sorts of meanings. Although it it is usually translated as destruction in this particular verse, The Greek word appears in a few other places in the New Testament. The NASB translates it as perdition when referring to Judas Iscariot. And that particular verse seems to be a colloquialism, son of perdition. I can think of close parallels in our own vernacular, so I don't put a lot of weight on that particular usage. 
But in other places, this word is translated as perish or even as something being a waste. So we need to carefully consider what Jesus might be trying to convey to his disciples when he says the wide road leads to destruction. He's just finished teaching them some very down-to-earth particulars about how to actually be disciples. And he says that not many people are willing to do these things. Not many people are willing to do the hard work of dealing with their own anger and lust or are willing to forego the notice and praise of other people, or are willing to hold their money and their possessions with an open hand. It seems to me that people who choose to hang on to their anger and lust will ultimately destroy all their relationships. And those who seek the recognition and approval of others will lose their self-respect, and ultimately their identity because they're letting themselves be defined by others. And those who expend all their energy pursuing money and storing up wealth and power for themselves will find themselves burdened with worry and paradoxically will find themselves with an attitude of scarcity, of never having enough. But it is such a tempting path. I think most of us, if we're honest, would admit feeling a strong pull towards indulging our anger or our lust, yearning for the approval and recognition of others, getting sucked into thinking we're not safe unless we have more money, more power, more of everything. That is certainly the wide gate and the spacious path. But look where that choice leads. It leads to the loss of everything that has any lasting value. If we lose ourselves and others, then we have indeed perished. We have wasted our lives. And I dare say destruction is not an overstatement. But notice, destruction is not hell. (laughs) Hell does not seem to be in view here. None of the Greek words usually translated as hell are used here. The word destruction here is expressing consequences, not punishment. This is a verse that has centuries of shellac on it. But if we strip away the shellac, we find that Jesus is talking about a very down-to-earth set of natural consequences of our choices. God's path that Jesus just explained to us takes more work and probably involves hardship, but it leads us to life and not to death. It leads us to life now, every moment of every day. It it leads us to life. But even if we choose wisely, You you guys all know our paths are certainly impacted by the bad choices other people make. Jesus warns his disciples, watch out for people who lie about what God says. Jesus calls them false prophets. Jesus is thinking ahead here. He isn't always going to be around for the disciples to follow. 
They need to be able to go out into the world themselves if they're truly going to be a help to Jesus. And they're going to run into a lot of religious leaders who are better educated and have a lot of important people on their side. What if these respected people say, God told me to tell you, or the law says such and such? How will these mostly uneducated, unprofessional disciples know if such people are speaking the truth of not? How they will doubt, these fishermen, they're going to doubt themselves. They'll waver. What will they do in these situations when they're outclassed and outmanned? Jesus says, there will be people who dress up like harmless sheep, but inside are ferocious wolves. So does Jesus tell his disciples to quit check whatever, whatever those people are saying by pulling out your copy of the law and the prophets? No, he does not. (laughs) Jesus says, look at their fruit. Do they bear good fruit or bad fruit? Well, that's very interesting. Jesus seems to be saying, don't look at whatever passage they've pulled out or whatever thing they're saying. Look at the whole tree, not just a single instance or a single statement. Look at the fabric of their lives. Have they chosen humility? Have they chosen to hold money and personal power with a loose hand? Or do they love the attention and praise they receive? Are their personal relationships in tatters? Do they abuse the people working for them? Are they prone to anger and name-calling? We already have a pretty good feel for what Jesus says a good tree looks like and conversely, what a bad tree looks like. Jesus says, trees that do not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown in the fire. And that makes sense. If the person who says they're speaking for God or for the Bible is bringing death to the world and is not producing life, They are worthless in Jesus' mission. And I still don't think heaven and hell are in view here. This still all sounds like a metaphor using a fruit tree as an example. It's a very simple rule of thumb that requires no education. And that should be a relief to us all. We can follow Jesus effectively and safely exactly as we are even if we don't have seminary degrees, and even if other people are wolves in sheep's clothing. Jesus continues this thought by telling his disciples, you can't just go by what people say. There will be many who give me lip service, calling me their Lord and Master, but it is only those who are actually doing what my Father desires who are in the kingdom of heaven. I think we have a lot of shellac on that phrase referring to doing God's will. It's important to understand that in the original Greek, this word about will encompasses God's desire and God's pleasure. It's how God would really love for things to operate. 
And Jesus has just explained to us what that looks like. It makes sense that God would desire all that is life-giving and good for us, and that God would try to steer us away from self-destruction and unhappiness. God's will is not some secret plan we have to suss out while he plays cat and mouse with us. No, 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 no. God's will has been clearly stated by all the prophets and now by Jesus. God's will is for all the nations on earth, for every single person to be blessed, period. God wants abundant life for us all, and God wants to be with us to enjoy it together. The other thing to notice is that phrase about who will enter the kingdom of heaven. We've seen pretty clearly so far that the kingdom of heaven is here for us to enter now. It's something that's already happening. What Jesus seems to be saying in this sentence is that there are going to be a lot of people who say they're disciples and that they're part of the kingdom of heaven, but they never actually do the things that align with bringing good news to the world. Then the scene switches. Jesus sort of switches, flips over into prophecy mode now, just like the Old Testament prophets. And I'm quoting from the NIV here. Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Well, we know from this special phrase on that day, that Jesus is talking about the end times here. That's sort of a code phrase used throughout the Hebrew Bible when a prophecy relates to the end times. In the Hebrew Bible, it refers to the day of the Lord, a great and terrible day in which all things are set right and Israel is delivered from danger and destruction. Later in the New Testament, it will be used to refer to the second coming of Christ. But at this point, it simply means the day God shows up in person. So on that day, in the process of setting all things right, God is clearly going to need to address those wolves in sheep's clothing. And Jesus says here that on that day, these people standing before God are going to turn and appeal to Jesus. So how did Jesus just teach us? to deal with people who say they are speaking for God. He says, look at their fruit. In this case, the people are saying they've prophesied, they've driven out demons, and they've performed many miracles. Those are all ways of speaking for God. Those are like the billboards, right? Jesus has been doing these things himself. But are any of these things on the list we need to do as disciples. In this sermon, in this training course, did Jesus tell his disciples to do any of these things? No, he did not. Jesus said things about dealing with our anger and lust, being humble, helping the needy, stuff like that. He even warned us against grand attention-grabbing gestures. Apparently, all these things these people list as their good works are nothing more than God showing up in spite of them. This is just God choosing to heal people, even through folks who clearly have not been doing 
all the unglamorous, humble things Jesus says we need to do. I expect that if we were in a position to look at these grand people as a fruit tree, metaphorically, we might see lives full of anger and strife and lust and abuse and self-aggrandizement and power-mongering. That certainly seems to be what Jesus sees, because he says his response will be, I never knew you. Get away from me, you evildoers. Entering the kingdom of heaven is all about humility and generosity and doing our own hard work. That is how you recognize a Jesus follower, not from their mighty miracles, nor from the words they say they speak for God. That's powerful stuff. <laughs> I think we have a pretty clear idea now of how to be disciples and how to recognize people who might lead us and everyone else astray. So let's take a quick look at the purple parts next. These are the do unto other bits of the Sermon on the Mount. Right off the bat, Jesus addresses that whole eye for an eye thing that is part of the law of Moses and has been part of the law for other Mesopotamian cultures for well over a thousand years. I mean, a long time. So here's what the law says. Leviticus 24 says, if a man injures his neighbor, do to him whatever he has done, a fracture for a fracture, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And in Exodus 21, there's a passage about harming slaves that also says, if two men are fighting and one strikes a pregnant woman such that her son is born prematurely, but no harm follows, then the man must pay whatever fine her husband sets. But if there is harm, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and foot for foot. Now, it's unclear as to whether the harm is limited to the slaves and the woman, but the loss of the fetus is covered by the fine or whether only the death or injury of a male fetus is considered harm. But for sure, a female fetus is not considered here at all. A female fetus is not even worthy of a fine. Jesus flatly contradicts this law. He says, you have heard the saying, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not push back against an evil person. If they slap you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek to them too. If they want to sue you for your shirt, just give it to them. Give them your coat too. If someone forces you to go one mile, go another mile as well. Give to anyone who asks you for something. Lend to those who ask you. Now, there's a couple of things I want to point out to you here. Many scholars, most notably the late and truly wonderful Walter Wink, have done a great deal of work on this passage, and they offer interesting alternative interpretations. Much is said about whether the slap is backhanded or open-palmed and what that might mean socially. I personally think you can just as easily backhand someone with your left hand as with your right, and I personally think the point is not how you are slapped. I think the point is that the slap is an insult. So what is actually hurt here? A slap does not imply great physical harm. Only your pride is actually hurt, right? And it is the slap is an invitation to you to enter into violence yourself. 
I think this is what Jesus is pointing out. I think he is saying, lay your pride down. Let them embarrass you. Your father in heaven sees you and knows you and values you. If they sue you for your shirt, give it to them. Give them your coat too. The law of Moses prohibited suing someone for their coat since that could be life-threatening in those days. But now at the time of Jesus and in the context of these disciples, these are just clothes. And Jesus has been trying to teach them not to value their possessions. He says, give whatever other people think they're due and don't be stingy about it. Give them even more than they think they have a right to. And this bit about if you're forced to go one mile, go two miles, is speaking directly to oppression by empire. Roman soldiers can and often do force people to carry their equipment. This is their legal right. But the law prohibits them from making someone carry it more than one mile. So this is a variation on the previous theme. Give them what is their legal right and go beyond it. Make an additional gift of an additional mile of your labor. This is reclaiming your agency, as Dr. Wink suggests, but it is also an act of humility. And I think it is the humility that is crucial to Jesus. And lastly, Jesus says, give whatever is asked of you, lend whatever someone wants to borrow. This is getting right back to Jesus' central teaching of us needing to hold our possessions with open hands. Our possessions are not our treasures. Our treasure is in helping these other people. Our treasure is in choosing to be the least among them. Our treasure is in seeing their value as God sees their value. Jesus sums this all up by saying, love your enemies, pray for them, bless them, Because God makes the sun rise on the evil as well as the good and lets rain fall on the just and the unjust. Even tax collectors and Gentiles love those who love them. You can do better than that. And it is here that Jesus says, in this way, we will be perfect as our heavenly father is. The verse we discussed earlier about growing and maturing and doing our breaststrokes and our dog paddles in a sea of grace. So in our breakout groups, let's talk about this. What does Jesus mean with this love your enemies, turn the other cheek stuff? Does he mean not to push back on someone like Hitler or Putin, not to defend yourself against rape? And as always, you can talk about that. Or if you can prefer, if you prefer, you can think more about Jesus statement that we cannot serve God and money. All righty, welcome back. Well, I hope that was an interesting discussion. Tell me what y'all came up with here. Oh, you should repeat what you were said at the very end. That was good stuff. Who? Me? You. Yeah. Oh. Well, we were talking about the second question about the love of money and that kind of thing. And I was talking about a time in my life, which Gail is very well acquainted with, when um, my husband had cancer and I did too. And we were very humbled. Uh, Our living situation changed drastically um, financially, but we learned 
the difference between our wants and our needs. And we discovered that what we needed was a whole lot less than what we wanted. And we got by, it was very humbling, um, but, but we made it, we made it through and all of our needs were provided for. And sometimes the exact amount of money we needed came to us one way or another. It might've been a check in the mail. It might've been from selling something, but we, we, we got everything we needed. And I think that's what he's talking about here. You know, our needs will be taken care of. Our wants, maybe not so much, but our needs will be met. The last thing she said before we got taken out of the breakout rooms was, it's all his anyway, it doesn't belong to us. What other reflections do you have on just in general uh, things you talked about or things that that seemed different or that you heard differently this time around? Well, I mean, we, we talked about the fairly obvious distinction that you alluded to, distinction between personal safety versus things like just property, which Jesus didn't put a whole lot of weight on and and uh, things like um, hurt pride. So you know, I, I think for me, it's a fairly, it's, a, it's an easy answer that yes, you can protect your personal safety. You can protect the personal safety of, of other people. But if you, if you start trying to protect your pride or your property, then you're going down the wrong path. It does seem obvious to me, but it's not necessarily obvious to everybody. And I'm not sure that I can claim that this is the only way to look at it. Well, there are complete religious pacifists, for sure. In fact, I told a story of a a professor of mine in college who, when asked by a member of the class, if, if somebody was about to kill his child and he had a gun and could shoot this person, would he do it? And he said, no, I wouldn't. And I think as I, I think he was Jewish, as I recall. So there are those people. No, I'm not one of them. Yeah, well, we were in, in our group, we were talking also on a similar vein, Woody, about, you know, this distinction that 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 you brought up, Gail, about um, personal pride and protection of the vulnerable. Um, but also one of the thoughts that I had was that there is also a difference between um, fighting off an attack or stepping in to protect someone who is being attacked or a nation that is being attacked. And that, or and then the difference between that and going off and seeking vengeance seeking to harm that person after the fact you know stepping beyond justice to you know sort of want to toot your own horn as to why you are fighting this horrible injustice but taking it to a degree of of vengeance
all of those situations can get complicated very quickly. Um, I mean, <clears throat> I think we could probably could most of us could agree that we can protect someone else who is um, being harmed. But what if you think somebody is about to harm somebody else? You know, what do you get to do to keep the person from that you think is about to harm somebody else from doing that? Uh, it's uh, not always an easy answer. Well, in living in a state like Texas, where we have uh, the gun, uh, the lack of gun restrictions that a lot of places have, and where we have our stand your ground laws and things, I think people feel emboldened um, to maybe do, to, to react more to some of these situations. And I think it's just a, a way of thinking. Um, in my mind, the distinction is, you know, give them your coat. Don't go and try to take their coat and take away everything they have. You know, that, that vengeance or getting even part is a distinction that I heard a lot in our discussion. And I, I agree with. We were saying also this week being Martin Luther King, you know, memorializing him and his perspective, you know, there is also another perspective of do not lay hands, you know, continue to, to stand up for injustice, but in a nonviolent way, um, no matter what, you know, whether you're thrown in jail, whether you're, you're beaten up or those that are with you. The um, nonviolent practices of the civil rights movement were not uh, automatic. They were trained and practiced. And I think that um, if we are trained and practiced in the ways that God wishes us to be, we'll have a better chance to not be involved in things that escalate. We will have a better chance to be a calming presence. Um, and so if we are intentional about practicing that sort of thing, about how we interact in, in all of our, you know, if it's a spiritual discipline even, to always say hello, to always hold the door, to always, um, you know, say a kind thing to a child, um, instead of it being polite, it being a spiritual practice. I wonder what that might lead to. Every time we're in a conversation like this, I am filled with gratitude for the inspired writings of Jesus and the good news of the gospel. Because while we're offered the image of the divine, there is space for the fully human, me, all of us. And I'm in the group. I was Martha kind enough called on me. I said I was trying not to talk because I talked too much last time. But I, um, I shared that someone said to me in my life, you know, Jesus invites us to read between the lines. And uh, that was a very powerful um, thing for me to embrace and to step back from being so literal and digging deeper. And I just am utterly amazed 
at the wisdom we're offered through the good news um, that we develop as humans. You can't separate our own stages of development to me with how we read the good news and how it, and every time I'm in a group and someone has a different lens, I, I just, it's rich because what it calls me to do is value where they are right now, not to judge it, not to feel to take them along to a new place, but I have, I have, for me, I have to understand where I am first before I can really extend that to others. And Gail and I have talked about this. I was, uh, book was recommended. I live in books, people. <laughs> Do you ever want to get me in attention, write a book. Um, but um, the book was The Stages of Faith, and it's written by theologian James Fowler. And um, Gail and Jacob knew it from seminary. And that book just helped me understand where I am in my spirituality and to deeply appreciate that the phrases that I have carried with me in my heart for years and years and years, I call you each by name. That means we are in community, but I have a walk. I have been called by name by my creator. And so I have a relationship there. I also have a relationship in community. And the other one that I love is, and it's a paraphrase, but who do you say that I am? And in my life, and I'm old, I could answer that so one way at five years old, 15 years old, 25 years old, 60 years old. Who do you say that I am? And the beauty of our creator is that we get to grow into that. So these conversations are so life-giving and affirming that we share faith. It may not all look the same, but we share a faith and a belief in the goodness. Uh, it just, thank you. Too many words again, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> When Mary was talking about, um, you know, read between the lines, Martha talked about turning the cheek, changing the perspective. Yes. I, you know, it, it made me think of, I think it's called practice the pause. Many times when we're in dialogue or giving mm -hmm. a speech, you know, I've had to give presentations for work and stuff. Like that. I don't like mm -hmm. to, but, you know, um, people don't like the silence. It's the pause. Everybody thinks they have to say something. And I'm and then I looked at these examples and I'm like, and I know for me, it's like I have to really um, practice the pause. And I wonder if it's the opportunities that God gives us to turn the other cheek or whatever to think about what our response is going to be. And not necessarily maybe giving up a coat, but Get us to think about, you know, the possessions we have that we don't use and give them to an organization that can reuse them or something, you know. So it's sort of like those quiet moments or even to say no to things. I have had, it's again, something I continue to work on is not to say yes, because I like to help out, but sometimes you need to say no, but it allows us to 
pray and think about what should we be doing? Um, you know, Lou Mar talked about the needs versus the wants. And it's sort of like, yeah, is it our time to practice the pause, learn to say no, to think about how can we reach out and help others as God wants us to do? I think there's a difference also between self-preservation and self-elevation. And, you know, there are cases in which we need to defend ourselves this life or death. But there are some cases where it's just a matter of pride. And that's an opportunity for us to be humble. I got, um, I was, you know, I have a group of one over here while y'all are all out there talking about this stuff. <laughs> so I asked myself questions and I answered them. I was, I was thinking, you know, that very first part about the definition of um, the Greek where, where Jesus uses a word that that means don't push back, don't take a stand, don't forcefully declare your convictions, hold, don't hold your ground against, don't resist, don't oppose evil. It's not that that Jesus is saying evil won't be pushed back. It's just not in the way you think, <laughs> not in the way the world does it. It's the way it's done in the way light pushes back darkness. We could probably spend a whole class period talking about this, um, because I have trouble with that too. With that idea that I, that we're not supposed to push back in any way against evil. Um, there are so many so many circumstances where it seems like I mean I think that we are in partnership with God, and um, if there is somebody doing evil. There might be different um, approaches to how to deal with that, but one approach might be to educate the person doing evil or, or uh, I don't know, some, some way to oppose it. I, I don't, I, I have a hard time with the idea that we're just supposed to get out of the way and let evil happen. Doesn't God, doesn't God often work through us? Yeah. yeah we're not I supposed to fight evil with evil. We're not supposed to fight we're not supposed okay we're not supposed to be like i'm going to name that church i'm not going to name that church but you know that one church that that protests at middle military funerals and and such things like that that's what this is telling you not to do we're not supposed to be yelling back at them we're not supposed to be saying that's what we're not supposed to be doing we're supposed to be shining a light into the darkness. Woody said the word. We're supposed to be educating. We're supposed to be salting. We're supposed to be sharing the good news in a positive way, not yelling and screaming at people and telling them they're going to hell if they don't do these certain things that we're telling them they have to do. Oh, my gosh. This I just, yeah. I exploded my brain just now. Yeah. Well, you know, and, 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 and what you're saying, Woody, um, I mean, the, 
names that came immediately into my head of people who have struggled with this in the past against great evil, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, trying to decide as, as a Christian and as a pastor, what was his role in opposing Hitler and the evil of Hitler and the in immense struggle he went through when he decided to participate in a plot to murder Hitler. Um, where would we contextualize that? And, um, and people like Martin Luther King, who, who was very much a proponent of nonviolence, but also was someone who stood up to the powers that were causing harm and put his own body sometimes between those being harmed and, and the harmers. Um, who should we hold up as an example? You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, Martin Luther King definitely spoke out against he, evil. Yes, yes. Um, do we look at both of these and say both of these men were, were following what God wanted them to do? I mean, I'll, I know Bonhoeffer struggled mightily before he came to the decision that the evil of Adolf Hitler was too great and could not be allowed to exist. Um, all of the Christians who go to war um, against um, someone who is, is killing and, and harming another country for evil purposes um, and justify that killing. It, these are like big, giant, moral questions that, you know, maybe was, was Jesus talking about those or was Jesus talking at a much more, you know, microscopic level in a sense, the here and now and what your, you know, your day-to-day -day injustices that you're suffering yeah, this uh, this particular verse um, is uh, in Matthew five thirty nine, and it's where Jesus is saying, "You've heard eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, your whole life." Mm -hmm. I'm telling you, it's all one sentence. You've heard eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I'm telling you, don't resist the evil one. Don't resist that evil. And then he goes into these examples and he gives these examples about the coat and the, you know, um, walking a mile and, and being slapped. So then should we not be extrapolating from this passage and this teaching, this direct teaching that he was doing with his disciples, not extrapolate out to these, these larger, greater issues that that's not what jesus is talking about here what do y'all think i had an insight today that i am so grateful for for years i have wrestled with free will and god's will you would not believe the amount of study and research and questioning and to the point that a friend of mine in sacramento said don't even bring up free will mary <laughs> There. I've looked to scientists, to um, scholars, to 
trying to resolve that issue in my own life, which is where is my responsibility if I follow Jesus? And you said two things today, Gail. You said lots of things, but two things that I noted because I'm still on this quest, you know, Native American culture, we go on a vision quest. Well, this Irish girl is on her quest to resolve free will versus God's will. (laughs) That's my life's journey. You said two things that I noted. Do they hold money or power with loose hand? That was so powerful because you can read it one way and you put the Pharisees, or you you can name the group, the wealthy, the 1%, but it's me. It is me too. I hold power and wealth. I have the wealth of the good news. I have the power of me being a person made in his image. So I don't take myself out of that particular quote. I put myself in it. And then the other thing that you said, God's will for all is to be blessed. And so when I come down to our discussion today, my free will would probably punish, persecute the things I know that I could make happen because I have my own personal power and my own wealth and my own, or I can live in God's will that know he's at work in all those people and they are blessed just as I am. I mean, I cannot believe that it was like, you know, oops, should I have a V8? I look like a bad commercial. But for me today, those two things helped me on that conversation and just step back and not be so literal to, and as I shared with the group, to step into another realm. But for me to step into a place it's God's will that to know God's in it all. And I'm not to judge it. I'm not, but I also to need to be patient because I may not see it immediately. You know, mm-hmm. I, I probably won't. I have a shelf life, you know, I may not see it, but. And don't you think that the, that the, um, uh, turn the other cheek part and the, you know, they ask for your shirt, give them your coat and mm-hmm. carrying their burdens and give, you know, if somebody sues you, give them everything they ask for and more is it's that all sounds to me like a way of blessing the other person. Yes. And all of it sounds to me like a one-on-one relationship and a one-on-one interaction. Mm-hmm. It's at a personal level. I, I, I don't extrapolate to, you know, national movements and empire. And that's not, not because I don't think it would be valuable there. I think that attitude would be really valuable at a national level. But, but. Well, but even on a, even on a personal level, if somebody is trying to harm you yeah. or kill you. That's different. That, yeah, that's different. Don't you think? I hear I hear Jesus saying something in it, speaking to a situation that is different than that. Right. All right. Is it? Is it? I think it gets tricky when people take <laughs> verses like we talked today and feel like they are the ones that have to speak for God. I think when 
when we look at this, we could use this verses and say, I am not the one that needs to speak for God. God can speak to that person in many different ways. Right. Um, so I need to trust and have faith that if there is something they're doing wrong or I don't agree with it, that's between them and God. <laughs> like, uh, I don't need to be God's spokesman. And that's I think the, that's the $64 question, though. It's like, OK, you see a situation that really needs some intervention. It, 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 should I? Is this a situation where God is uh, going to work through me? Or is God going to, you know, should I just step back and let God work through somebody else if, if there is anybody else? It's a, it's a really tough question. I think it's a, Woody, it's, that's a really good point. And so many times we, what do we do when we are bystanders or witnesses to something? And I think about some examples that, you know, you see somebody being given a hard time because of their race or their ethnicity or their religious, the the clothing they wear because of their religious beliefs. And um, there are ways to intervene that are safer than others. So example, one of the ones was um, two young fellows are walking down the street. It's late at night. They're both college students. They're friends. One's black, one's white. Cop stops and it only wants to talk to the black kid and the white kid says why aren't you talking to me too you know if you're gonna ask him those questions you have to ask me those questions um and you know other instances of examples of somebody's being harassed on the bus because of the religious garb she's wearing you know as simple as going over and sitting beside her to interrupt or or um you know having a conversation with her that excludes the person who's trying to harass her, different things like that. And those are interrupting injustices and hopefully providing a safe out for everybody, right? Um, And I think it goes to relationship, which has been mentioned a little bit here. I'm also thinking of two, three people that I know, they are Regional organizers for the for Reconciling Ministries Network, which is a movement um, of Methodists for full inclusion of LGBTQ plus folks in the Methodist Church. And one of the women in particular is just such an outstanding example of love and relationship. And that she starts there and she gives an invitation. Um, it was in a small town in North Carolina. She identifies as asexual. She is married to another woman. And the first thing that she did when she moved into their new neighborhood in this small town was bake cookies and knocked on everybody's doors and um, just introduced herself. If you have a chance to have a relationship with someone, you have a much better chance of reacting and interacting both parties in a loving way. And, you know, it's practices like that that I think are such examples for us of examples for me, certainly of um, how can I 
be an embodiment and how can I not fall into the traps of name calling and frustration and anger and um, those people are completely wrong. Well, those people that are completely wrong are also raising children that they love fiercely and who they want a good education for and, you know, whatever on and on and on and on that are so many of the values that we share are shared values. And um, I just, and one more thing, and then I'll kind of stop the street, bit of a stream of consciousness. There's an interesting contrast between what Jesus is saying here to us, we think as individuals and the Old Testament story that God was talking to the nation. And, and I wonder about whether God is talking, you know, that's a big switch with Jesus, a big switch with Jesus, it seems to me. Individuals were expected to behave in a certain way, but there were armies after armies after armies and so much bloodshed in the Old Testament. And I'm not sure Jesus ever really addresses that, does he? And what does that tell us in the context of what we're talking about today? That's a terrific, terrific question. Martha, and we're about to the limit of what my recording will be able to handle. So we can't, we could, like what he said, we can talk and talk about this because this is a, this is something we wrestle with. Um, so I, I want to offer a couple of things to you um, in closing. One is that while on the one hand, in this one verse, Jesus said, don't resist evil in the context of this personal eye for you know eye for an eye don't don't take revenge and but earlier he also said what you do are supposed to do is do the things I'm telling you and teach the things I'm telling you it was a two-pronged thing so I think that um, part of how we can address these greater evils in the world is in that little teaching prong um, and also it, uh, I, I think that we have a responsibility to be trained ourselves in many of the techniques that Martha is talking about in how to defuse violent situations in a nonviolent way. It behooves us to get educated and be trained so that we can effectively prevent other people from getting hurt and prevent ourselves from getting hurt. And, and lastly, I would, I think it is, I'm just giving you my opinion. I think it is vital that we do everything we can to take action to correct systemic injustices in this world. And I think that is part of us holding our white privilege with an open hand. It is part of us giving that away to the people who need that. So with that as food for thought, all of this is food for thought. Um, we need to finish up today and we will go on to our 
Let's see, is this our third lesson on the Sermon on the Mount? I think we're on our last one next week. So we will finish up the Sermon on the Mount next week. Love you all. Thank you so much. Safe travels, Erica and Ellen. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 Bye.